last couple of sermons, you might have noticed that the theme of the reliability and sufficiency of Scripture uh, has really risen to the surface, even though that wasn't exactly the, the main focus of the message. It's certainly something that connects them together. And so I want to draw that idea out a little bit further today as we come to Psalm 111. For those of you that are, are joining us for the first time, we've been on a, a two-year expository series through the book of Psalms, and so 111 Sundays later, here we are. Uh, this psalm, uh, whose whole theme really and lyrics emerge as God's people are finally allowed to return to the land of Israel after having been 70 years in exile, uh, as captives first of the, the Babylonians and then of the Medo-Persians, a time that saw not only the destruction of the nation of Israel, the desecration of their holy temple, uh, the deportation and displacement of literally thousands of people, but led to a, a dearth of sound doctrine, a loss of exposition from the scriptures, and really a lack of biblical literacy among God's people. Uh, it's a psalm that was written in, in a time of, of cultural and national uncertainty that's not completely unlike the times we're living in right now, when the people of God were in a struggle for the heart and the soul of their nation. Uh, one that, that pitted them against the pagan influences and loose morals of the prevailing culture, and one that ultimately uh, was set right by a bold proclamation of God's word in the public square, uh, and its sincere and heartfelt reception among God's people. And that's, that's the context from which Psalm 111 emerges, and so I hope you'll join me there. I hope you're following along in your own Bibles. This is what the psalmist writes, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He's caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Let's pray. Father God, we've, uh, we've just opened and, and read your word, and so help us to receive it uh, as just that, as inspired, uh, as God-breathed, as authoritative for our good. Uh, send your Holy Spirit now, we pray, and, and write it on our hearts. Uh, send your Holy Spirit to reveal it through my lips uh, send your Holy Spirit to find it received by ears that hear and minds that are open. For Jesus Christ, in his name's sake, we pray. Amen. So if you, if you remember the, the story, and it's been a long time since we studied it in Sunday school, but from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, it's about 539 B.C., uh, the nightmare of, of the Jews' national defeat and the, the memory of the slaughter and the forcible deportation that accompanied it had, had begun to fade, and, and now they're, they're coming home. The people 
are coming back to the promised land. Uh, most of the, the folks that are returning have never actually seen the holy city, though, because they've, they've been born in Babylon. But they had heard stories of its former greatness. The ones that were actually old enough to uh, remember its beauty and tell of it firsthand, headed back with kind of a, a twinge of anticipation since their last view of it would have been as smoldering ruins and broken down walls and the desecrated temple as they had been led out in chains knowing that there wasn't going to be much left to come home to if they ever did. And so it wasn't easy for the Jewish remnant that returned to Jerusalem after a seven-decade absence. Uh, as you can imagine, the squatters who had, had moved in in the interim were, were hostile and naturally they didn't want to give the land back. Uh, and almost could you blame them because they'd lived there for a lifetime now. The local officials of the uh, Babylonian kings weren't real keen on the idea either, but since they couldn't oppose the king openly, they chose to be as uncooperative as they possibly could get away with, like many politicians. Uh, the local economy uh, was in shambles, triggering a lack of goods and services to the returning citizens, but even worse than all of the material scarcity they faced, the, the decimation of God's temple in Jerusalem and the loss of the synagogues in the towns and villages resulted in a famine of sound teaching from God's word and a lack of biblical literacy. And, and that's where Psalm 111 comes from. It's probably the first psalm actually written after the repatriation of Israel. Uh, and it's done, as you saw when we read it, it's, it's very short, right? Compared to some we've read, it's very simple. Uh, and it's even more so in the, in the original Hebrew because Psalm 111 is one of the acrostic psalms, uh, acrostic poems in the book of Psalms. And we've talked about this before. If you remember, there's nine of them all together. Uh, Ray, do you want to tell us all what all nine they are? No, I'm not going to put you on the spot. Uh, but I'll, I'll give you a clue. We've looked at five of them already uh, in the early... I pick on him because he doesn't mind. Uh, we've looked at five of them already in our journey through this book, and, and we're returning to the rest of them now. So, the ones we've covered, we've looked at Psalm 9 was one, Psalm 10, Psalm 25, Psalm 34, and Psalm 37. It's all coming back to you now, right? Uh, which leaves us with today's Psalm 111. Uh, next week, Psalm 112. And then we're going to come up to Psalm 119 and Psalm 145 later down the road. They're all acrostics. And you guys know what an acrostic is, right? It's a, it's a poem or, or other form of writing in which the first letters or the first syllable of each line spells out a word. Or, it's a poem that follows an alphabetical order. And that's what today's psalm does. But don't look for it in English, because you're not going to see it. Uh, it's only in Hebrew. Psalm 111 uses the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet to start each line, and the writer uses each letter of the alphabet in sequence straight through. So there's 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, 22 opening lines. But like everything else in Scripture, there's a reason for that. James Montgomery Boyce, the great expositor, said, uh, we can think of several reasons why the acrostic style was used. In one, it may have been an artistic device to add a certain beauty to the psalm as rhyming does in our English poetry. Uh, number two, it may indicate that the subject was being covered completely or from A to Z, as we might say. Uh, number three, the acrostic may have been a mnemonic device designed to assist in the learning of the psalms. And he closes by saying, uh, that's probably why many Old Testament passages are poetry rather than prose because poetry is easier than prose to memorize, right? And that easily recalled format 
of Psalm 111 was used to begin the process of reorienting and refocusing the people's attention on the scriptures. And think about this, because scriptures would have been on really short supply over this last 70 years in exile. And because of that, uh, its intent from its format to its word choices uh, to its overarching message is designed to remind the people uh, of God's faithfulness in their affliction, to reassure them of his very present help in time of trouble, and most importantly, to redirect them to the vital tenets of sacred scripture, and to do it in a way like the very fabric of their reclaimed nation depended on it because it did. Uh, just like ours does today in the 21st century. Where really un unlike Ezra's day, the avenues to get access to the Bible in the course of everyday life are almost endless from, from print to portable device, right? You can get Bibles all kinds of ways, but where the level of knowledge and understanding church is at an all-time low even among many who are professed believers. And so, like those post-exilic Israelites, we need to recognize the depth of the problem. We need to recommit to a deeper connection to the Scriptures, and we need to ask for a movement of the Holy Spirit to help us regain a proper perspective on the vital place the Scriptures have in our homes and in our hearts and in the country around us as we head further and further into social and spiritual chaos. And you may say, well, how, how bad is it, Pastor? How, how bad could it really be? Well, listen to a few of these survey results. Uh, fewer than half of all adults surveyed can name all four Gospels. Many professing Christians surveyed cannot name more than two or three of the twelve Apostles. Sixty percent of average Americans surveyed can't even name five of the Ten Commandments. 82% uh, of Americans surveyed believe that the line, God helps those who help themselves, is a Bible verse. Uh, and, and this next one sounds like a joke that I would tell, but it's not funny. An astonishing 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Now that sounds like a corny joke that I would tell, but that's not funny. That's a real result of a survey. Uh, and, and the last one, a survey of graduating high school seniors revealed that over 50% thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. Now, I mean, we can, we can laugh and snicker at that, but guys, that's scary. Uh, leading one commentator to write, and, and I, I love this quote. It's a little bit long, but it's worth a read. He says, biblical uh, illiteracy is the, the single most significant threat to the viability of the church in America. And then he says, do I really mean that, he asks, and he, he answers himself, I absolutely do, and here's why. Because God has established his word as a cultural watershed. Once the Bible has been removed from the heart and the mind of a person or a civilization, collapse is imminent. Our postmodern culture is gravely ignorant of God's thoughts and the Bible's wisdom. Our churches are largely impotent. Our society is therefore at risk. The walls of protection are crumbling. And he finishes by saying, it is time to rebuild brick by brick using the reinforcing precepts found in God's word that contain a record of his work through the ages. Which is why after a brief word of praise at the beginning of Psalm 111, we read, great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Full of, of splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. He's caused his wondrous works to be remembered. 
And you know, one of the most rudimentary ways that the people of God in Ezra's day and, and we in ours begin to get a grasp of the certainty of Scripture is to recognize that the stories of the Bible, because they are true, make dents in the timeline of history. And they correspond to reality. They mention dates and places and names that can be identified and, and verified by archaeology and secular history. Uh, not only that, the cosmology of the Bible describes the natural world exactly as we find it. A beautifully ordered planet which Job told us uh, hangeth upon nothing that had a definite beginning and one that is perfectly designed for our existence. And you know what? The Bible also accurately describes better than any other religious text the brokenness and violence that exists in humanity. Uh, a fact that, that we'd all like to forget at times, but it's easily seen by watching even five minutes of any newscast. Uh, and those things combined provide substantial evidence of God's nature and His plan and His purposes so that we can confidently place our faith in Him through the ways He's revealed Himself to us. But you know, as I said, that's only the beginning. Because since we have His Word, we're not left to just archaeology or just historical fact, or just theological guesswork, but we can know how to live. We can know how to make decisions. We can know how to worship the Lord because the Bible gives us God's direct revelation, meaning that the, the Scriptures are, are divinely inspired, that, that God was involved in every detail that was written and recorded. Uh, church is God-breathed, and it is life's final and ultimate authority. The Bible is the last word on issues pertaining to God and His will for us. A, a will which encompasses everything from, from how you live to who you love. Uh, it encompasses your choice in friends to how you handle your finances. It, it accompanies your life's vocation to, yes, who you choose to vote for. Uh, they are not separate categories. And church, no individual... No institution, no political party, and no organization can supersede the authority of Scripture or override its principles for right living. That's why Psalm 111 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All of those who practice it have good understanding. One commentator said on this about fearing God, he said, The Lord is not a monster that you should dread. That the Scriptures mention that you should fear the Lord does not mean you should be afraid of Him. No God is your Father, and He wants you to relate to Him as such. But when the Scriptures say, fear the Lord, it is pointing you to the fact that you need to revere Him. Uh, and to do that means that we obey Him. But how can we obey Him if we don't know what He said? That's also why we're admonished not to add to or take anything away from the Scriptures, but receive it as it is. The whole package, from the first line of Genesis to the last amen of the Revelation because it perfectly expresses the decrees and the judgments of Almighty God, and it uh, presents it as authoritative truth, uh, a truth that fills out anything we may be lacking. That's why Psalm 111 today says he provides food for those who fear him. Uh, because, of course, in the one sense, God did provide every material resource that the Jews needed to return to the promised land, and, and we know that we can... Uh, acknowledge his provision for our, our physical and temporal needs, but in a, a larger sense, the consistent witness of Scripture is that the Bible is also palatable and nourishing. 
So now, when it comes to the Bible, you know, we're familiar with words like read, study, meditate, but you might not be all that accustomed to hearing the word eat uh, when it comes to the Scripture. And admittedly, it does uh, sound, talking about eating the Bible does sound a little strange, uh, but the truth is that God has given us His Word to be our spiritual food. You may remember back in Psalm 34, 8, where we read, uh, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in Him. Uh, or ahead in our series when we get to Psalm 119, where we'll find how sweet your words taste to me. They're sweeter than honey. Or there's Jeremiah 15, 16. Thy words were found and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. So although we, we may read with our eyes and study God's word with our minds, if we don't eat it, if we don't really get it inside of us, we're going to end up being spiritually hungry as a result. And we're going to start to get weak in our Christian lives. That's what had happened to the people in exile. And so when they got back to the land and they actually got a, a taste of it, again, their reaction was life-alteringly dramatic. The uh, book of, of Nehemiah chapter 8 picks up the story uh, as God's people are resettling in the land. And we're told uh, in the fall of the year when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. And so Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and women, all the children old enough to understand. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. And all the people listened closely to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform that had been made for the occasion. Ezra stood on the platform in full view of all the people. And when they saw him open the book, they all rose to their feet. And then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted, Amen, Amen, as they lifted their hands. And they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites then instructed the people in the law while everyone remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people to understand each passage. And then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, don't, don't mourn or weep on such a day as this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And why the tears? Well, it's because, church, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the Bible enlightens individual hearts to recognize personal sin and our need for salvation. That's why we read in Psalm 111 this morning, He sent His redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. And, church, that's one of the other great proofs that the Bible is really God's inspired word is its unique ability to convict men and women of their sins. Just like Nehemiah chapter 9 tells us, uh, the people assembled again, those of Israelite descent separated from all foreigners as they confessed their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. They remained standing in place for three hours. For three hours. I can't even get everybody to come to Bible study. Uh, <laughs> while the book of the law of the Lord their God was read aloud to them. And then for three more hours, they confessed their sins and worshiped the Lord their God. And guys, why did that happen? 
it happened because the scriptures possessed divine power to convict human hearts and to expose sin and to reveal our true need for God's grace. It happened because, as Hebrews 4 tells us, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You know, any other book that you choose to pick up is lifeless. It's dead. But not the Bible. It alone is innately viable. It is always relevant. It is never stagnant. And it's not just simply alive, but church, it's active. In fact, Martin Luther said, the Bible is alive because it speaks to me. It has feet because it runs after me. It has hands because it lays hold on me. Just like God said of his word in Isaiah 55. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And it will do it with the razor-sharp precision of that two-edged sword. Because, in other words, it possesses the ability to cut both ways. The Bible has the ability to build up or tear down. Scripture can comfort or it can afflict. Scripture can harden or soften. And, church, it will ultimately save or damn. Stephen Lawson, commentator, said on this one, proclaimed the Bible does not merely inflict surface scrapes or flesh wounds. Rather, it penetrates the outward facade of a person's life and cuts all the way to the joints and the marrow. Thus, the Bible is able to reveal the depths of man's inward depravity and need for saving grace. No worldly message or conventional wisdom can do this. He says it does not stroke the ego or tickle the ears. Instead, the living word of God cuts to the bone all the way to a person's real needs, exposing the heart for what it is, desperately sick. He closes by saying, though, but that sickness remains covered until probed and provoked by the scriptures and that happens uh, and once that happens then like uh, like like an expert surgeon cracking open our hearts uh, and, and removing them from our chest taking that that poisoned heart of pride and pain and replacing it with a new affection for God that draws us away from sin and draws us back to him and draws us into a return to the word of God that can change the course of this world we live in and our eternal destiny in the world to come. Just like it did for those first returnees to the Holy Land so that, you know, along with them, we can say, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord of my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation, because he has sent his redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name in church. That name is Jesus. And that redemption came at the cross, sealing his elect in a holy and eternal covenant, proclaimed in his word, where Psalm 111 says, he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. Remembered all the way from Genesis through the Exodus. Remembered from the exile to the return of Ezra's day that we read about, from the Gospels and the life of Christ, to that little fledgling church of the first century, down to the Reformation of Calvin and Luther, and all the way here to Zephyr Hills today, where that same Redeemer is still available. Available to those who repent and believe the gospel. 
who repent from putting their trust in anything other than Jesus Christ, who have submitted themselves to him and recognize that he suffered and died in our place, that he satisfied the demands of the law, that he removed the guilt of our sin, and that he graciously replaces it with eternal life and the assurance of heaven. And one that we don't deserve. I don't and you don't. And if you're ready to find out how all of that begins, guys, it starts right here. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you so much for your precious word. We thank you that you uh, are a God who speaks and you speak so clearly. And so, Father, I ask that you would open hearts, that you would open minds. You would grant repentance today, I pray, to all that have heard your word. Uh, Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit uh, to inspire again a great love for this holy book uh, and bring revival to your people, Lord, both here and around the world. In Jesus' name, amen.